Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime and gore. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, city desk. Pull the press, pull the press. Extra, extra, read all about it. It's a mess meets the test. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. It's wonderful to represent the press. Now you remember... The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on what's been going on in the news media in the last few days, and we're happy to have you aboard for that conversation. I'm Rex Smith, editor-at-large at the Times Union. This week, we are with, of course, Alan Shartok, the CEO of Northeast Public Radio, investigative journalist Rosemary Armeo, and Jen Smith, formerly of the Berkshire Eagle, of course, known to people in the capital region of New York and in the Berkshires. She is now the engagement editor for the Education Lab at the Seattle Times. The engagement editor for the Education Lab at the Seattle Times. So, Jen, how do you make sure that people engage with stories? What do you do? It's been really fun so far, actually. Um, Last week, we had a live panel with students and parents talking about how the school year is going and how to get through it. And this week, I met with some of our translators because we have a strong Spanish-speaking population and also Somali population. So it's engaging readers that way, making sure that we're reaching them and meeting them where they're at in their own language. So it's all of that. I think knowing what engages readers is really difficult. I mean, Alan, you get that at WAMC by just listener response. You can tell what content really draws attention because you're asking people to call you a lot, right? And write emails. But there are also metrics you can use looking at what kinds of stories get people's attention, right? Well, I don't think there's any doubt about it. You do what's responsible. I mean, we have a wonderful news director in Ian Pickus, a young man, uh, relatively young to me anyway, who does the stories that some people might call boring, but are fundamental to what goes on in each of the communities that we serve. And then we have our morning panel, which does excite a lot of people, and we get a lot of comments about how many people are listening, and we get a ton of letters and people. And right now, I don't think there's any question that it is the presidential election that is really what is exciting most people. When I say exciting, I mean involving. Rosemary, you've been involved in journalism since the 1970s in a very proactive way as an editor, as a reporter, as a professor. Are you at all concerned that we have gotten off the uh, track of what's important because we're so focused on making sure that we can engage readers? I'm sitting here listening to this conversation about engagement, which used to mean getting married and metrics, which was a system we didn't use in the United States. I I am a dinosaur. I, I liked news Even in the 1930s, which I've only read about and did not participate in, where journalists went out and found great, interesting stories and told them in exciting ways. And I think we've gotten really far from that and have not gained anything from it. I don't think that we've won over any more people than we did before. On the other hand, translating our stories into language our readers can read seems like a really good idea. So it's not like I'm opposed to it. I just, frankly, I don't get it. And also, I go even further. I mean, I can remember when newspapers were first into decline and we speak 
way too much about the decline of the newspaper industry on this program, but the attempt then was to make it more visually exciting, forgetting that a newspaper is essentially uh, a bunch of rectangles, and there's only so many ways you can design that. And instead of investing in reporters who would find terrific, amazing stories like Nexium, like going after the government to find out where who, who died in nursing homes, great stories, local of in, local interest. We were investing in putting pretty icons on the first page. I think we've been misguided for a long time, and it shows in our decline. You know, I think it's it's evolved, though. I think, you know, because we're not looking just at the print paper anymore and those particular rectangles on a broadsheet. It's, it's tiles on a phone, and you do have to think intentionally, and you do need design to be able to tell that story, and you need good headlines to draw folks in and then hope that they get pulled into the journals. And I think that's going to be the challenge for some exciting, some daunting Whereas in a broadcast medium, not a ton has changed in like the formatting of it, but in news and, you know, print and online, it's changed drastically. Now, we used to say content should drive design. That has not changed Mm. as the media has changed and switched over to multimedia. And I don't think it was ever true because we're putting so much money into the design that we're not hiring people, for example, who know how to do forensic accounting, how to read financial sheets, how to take classes to learn all these things. It's all in design. Oh, I don't think that's true at all. I think the best of journalism education these days and the people who are getting ahead are those who are learning how to tell complex stories more thoughtfully. It's not really a design matter. I do think you're seeing a lot more attention to assessing what people are paying attention to. It's a great frustration to me, the, you know, the job that I gave up February 1st as the editor of the paper. The great frustration is that I spent so much time paying attention to what stories draw people's attention, how to keep people engaged that it gave me less time to focus on the journalism of actually what stories we are pursuing. That I'd agree with, but I don't think we're failing to teach people about forensic accounting, as you say. I mean, look at the most important political story, perhaps, of this season has been the New York Times tearing apart Donald Trump's tax returns, and that required some very thoughtful reporting, right? Totally agree. Four reporters at the mm-hmm. top newspaper and possibly the world. And I'll give you the Washington Post, too. And I'll even give you the L.A. Times. After that, desert. Well, and I think you are finding, you know, more projects and, and collaborations which actually can benefit for you. Because to look at the big data that's being used, like, it's, it's not just the news industry that's looking at analytics from the big data standpoint. It's, it's our government. It's our our cities, it's anything that deals with a budget or demographics, test scores, for example, you know, vaccination trials, that all has to deal with big data. And you do, Rosemary is absolutely right, you do need to invest in smart people who can understand and translate and write good stories about that and find the stories behind those numbers. You know, and I think having great big projects like the Panama Papers, there's immense value and change that's driven by that. There have been a lot of arrests from from those two particular projects and, and policy changes. So I think that's critical. That's exactly what we're here for. But I, I think you have to toe the line of like not getting buried in the analytic side, like, you know, the reader response side and stick to your guts of, of what Rosemary was talking about, the good old fashioned journalism of going out there and finding a good story. I think what's haunted the storytelling process from the past is that that story was told from a very one-sided lens and a lot of times throughout history. I'm talking about 
a white dominated, male dominated lens. And I think you see the diversity in startup projects like the 19th, for example, that are intentionally diversifying their new staff and telling stories with storytellers who were historically and are still not, like in contemporary times, not being represented in the, the newsroom. We see that with the, the LA Times case and the Latino caucus, that you need those people there to be able to tell the stories that are interesting, compelling to today's audiences. You know, I know that you'll laugh, but I've often thought that sex is a function of opportunity, and so is journalism. You know, the idea that something is coming up right now, we have a presidential election, which I expect the president will try to fix that election. I'm sure of it. Now, if you're a journalist, this is going to offer an awful lot of opportunity just as the Pentagon Papers offered an opportunity. But this now is just an invitation to reporters to get a Pulitzer Prize. And Rosemary, I'm fascinated by what you would have to say about this. We're going to need every person looking at every jot and tittle of the way in which these votes are counted. Yeah, I mean, newsrooms all over the country right now should be making sources and figuring out the system and how is it supposed to work, both for the postal system and the electoral system. I think AOC hit on a huge story when she complained after waiting hours in line to vote, and she got up to a microphone later and said, look, just because this is a blue state doesn't mean this is voter suppression. Why are those lines that long? Why can't they open Mm -hmm. more polling places or keep them open longer? Just why is it that people have to wait four hours to vote? And that's a local story. It's happening in Albany. It's happening in St. Louis. It's happening everywhere. So you are That right is absolutely true. Here. And I also agree that was a brilliant insight by uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And that that is going to be a fundamental story that journalists are going to be pursuing going forward, I hope, because we need to make democracy more responsive. And, and if that's not a social gain that is to make democracy more accessible and responsive. I don't know what would be. That's something that, as you say, it's a local story that can be done in every newsroom. What has been interfering with doing better election administration in this country? And we ought to all be on top of that in a huge way after and I think this election. They are. I think they are. I, I think, you know, people, newsrooms are sending reporters to the local polling sites and watching, you know, who's staring down voters, who's asking for what IDs or or things like that, who's doing explainer pieces of what happens to your ballot once you put it in that Dropbox. You know, that's important, critical information that is nonpartisan. And that's what people need right now is, you know, what happens to your vote? There's a lot of confusion about, you know, people right now are asking if they can change their vote. And what does that mean? And we also have to prepare our audiences for a really long wait. And I think there's a lot of dangerous things that can happen on election night, and we need to be ready for it. I would just want to be more proactive. I mean, right now, how long does it take for a first-class piece of mail to move, take the Capital District from Albany to Gilderland? How long does it take to get from Albany to Schenectady? I don't know, and I don't know of any news organization. we got a lot of them who've done testing. That's been done elsewhere. We're just stuck. I don't know. We're worried about our business, and that's keeping us, in some ways, I think, from just going all out, just go crazy with stories. There's wonderful stories to be told and not enough are being put out. We also have to know what we're talking about in terms of the way that politics, for example, in this case, operate. Now, one of the questions that is confusing to a lot of people, for example, is the fact that the Democrats, forget about the Republicans, have their own things which stink like a fish, trying to push out the third parties, for example. That's because... The Democrats 
are there by the old system, and they are not interested in changing the way so that some young kid is going to come along and beat them. Now, you've got to really understand how it works. And I've talked to a lot of reporters who call me up and ask questions who don't always understand it because they're not fundamentally grounded in the way politics works. One of the difficulties is, though, that in looking at political coverage, it is so often defined as the horse race. You know, we're often looking at who's winning and who's not and what tactics are being used and what aren't, whereas what is so important, of course, are the issues that people are making decisions on. I mean, a great example of this is during the uh, second presidential debate when Kristen Welker of NBC News asked a question about climate change and actually elicited a 12-minute conversation about climate change between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, which is an issue that gets so little attention when you consider it is an existential matter for us. But what came out of it, unfortunately, in the coverage, some of the critique of the coverage after this was that journalists fell back on the horse race framing and talked about how Joe Biden had said we need transition from the oil industry, instead of talking about the broader issue there that was actually dealt with. It was what's going to be the impact of the transition from the oil industry comment by Joe Biden. That's lazy reporting. That's just lazy journalism, not to focus on the issue itself and instead to just grab onto the politics of it. So I I just worry, Alan, that in paying attention to how the politics happens, we lose sight of the issues that really matter to the people often. Well, I agree with you. Unfortunately, and I want to again go back to Rosemary, as well as you, Rex, as editors, in terms of what will make a person read a column? What will make a person read a news story? Is it a philosophical discussion of climate change, which we have talked about so many times, or is it that they got into a fight as to whether or not the oil industry was going to be affected in Pennsylvania or the coal industry? Those are the things that make people read. It's not that they have to be separated either. Joe Biden set off a firestorm when he made those comments, and it could easily segue from that to, you know, what did oil executives think about it? What do experts in the field think about it? Did he say something that was really as new and startling? It certainly was startling to hear a national politician talking about ending the oil industry. And we also missed the boat. I mean, go back to Hillary Clinton did the same thing when she said coal mining jobs were going to go away. And she was just killed for that, too. It was turned from not we have to retrain people into new jobs, but we're going to take your jobs away. And she wants to go after coal. And the media, in a way, because they did exactly what Rex was talking about, helped Trump get away with that deception. That's not what she was talking about. Exactly. Right? Mm -hmm. We can go from what the politicians are saying to what it really means and the fact that they're talking the truth. Well, newspapers aren't liberal arts faculties. You know what I mean? (laughs) Why aren't they? We have enough graduates from liberal arts colleges. I understand. You mean they don't just argue among themselves all the time about stuff that doesn't matter? Is that what you're talking about? There you go, Rex. You see, that terrible comment just indicates exactly the opposite of what you guys were just talking about. If you want to talk about climate change, and we do it enough in our classrooms, then how come it doesn't translate, that doesn't translate, into the way in which we do it on the, in the news? Well, it goes back partly to one of the things Jen was talking about at the beginning of the program here, which is how we present the story 
stories. Or actually, in Rosemary, in talking about visualizing stories, you know, if we can make the climate change stories more visually appealing, if we can present them not just as big chunks of type and words that people have to wade through, but give them visual clout and graphics and statistics that people can latch onto, that's what the best journalism programs are teaching these days, and that's how to engage readers so that they'll pay attention, right? I would say that if you can do it effectively and you can show people what's happening in their backyards, I think it's it's different. It's one thing to look at a pie chart or a bar graph, but it's another thing to look at side by side. Here's what your river looks like in 1940. Here's what it looks like in 2020 and to see a depleted landscape. You know, that tells the story much more effectively than even in words could, right? And, and I think it's, it's that blend of accurately telling people how a story can impact your life. You know, if you're talking about oil jobs and if, if you're watching the bait and you're an oil worker, you're wondering about your job and you're wondering about yeah. whether your employer is going to back you and support you and those things. And you do have to talk to the executives. You do have to talk to the industry experts, but you do have to talk to the people. And for every exactly. oil worker, that oil worker has a family, has a stake or they own a home in a town. And what does that do to, you know, something that's considered an, an oil town or a coal town or a gas town? Um, when we're talking about energy and in the environment. You know, all these things have impact and you have to look at that story and spend time in the story. You can't just do a one and done story. These are times and issues where the, the story needs to be told for a long time. The effects of this pandemic, for example, on the economy, on industry, on schools is going to happen for a long time. And we need to be able to tell those stories as a series in a smart and authentic way. I've been looking at an exhibit at the Albany Institute of History and Art, which is broadsides. These are big slabs of paper filled with type, tiny, tiny little type, modernized. We need to use a magnifying glass to look at it. No pictures, no graphics, no headlines even, except for one on the top. And it was filled with news, and they were immensely popular. People would go into taverns and read them, paste it to the walls or the table. They would buy them from printers and take them home. It was a desire, a thirst for information. And why don't we have that now? Why do I have to entice somebody with a pretty graphic or talk to somebody who's, you know, an oil worker? That's great. Okay, and I understand their job is affected, but that's not the story we're talking about. We're talking about their job what about is for people... the environment. We're not telling that story. What about... We're telling formulistic stories about, oh, he's torn between he wants a better home for his future for his kids and his job right now. I've read that story 5,000 million times. I don't want to see it again. Doesn't do it. But that story hasn't changed. And and what, what about for people who aren't literate? What do you do? How do you get the, the news to them? And you, you have exactly. to think about these things. You know, you see them as multiple windows of opportunity to tell stories. And if you're not leveraging every tool you can, whether it's visual, whether it's text, you know, I'm not saying one should, you know, make the other go extinct. I absolutely disagree with that. But I, I, I fully support utilizing every single modern tool that's available to tell important stories and get them out there to as broad as audiences as you can. We don't so disagree on this. My, well, my point is that limited well, resources and more of it is going towards the bells and whistles than the basic stories 
getting news. Those are not well, bells and whistles. That is fundamental storytelling. That's, uh, that, that is how people consume information now. You can pine for the 19th century when those few people who voted, by the way, it was only an elite group of white men and property owners primarily who voted. And you can pine for that by saying, wouldn't it be great if those people were the people who were dominating our voting these days? But the fact is, people consume information so much more visually these days. And to not recognize the changes in how humans access information and communicate is to consign journalism to a 19th century realm and we won't survive. So we have to. It's not bells and whistles. It is the way that storytelling needs to be done. I'm not good at it. You know, I'm I'm a guy who writes with words, but I, in my hiring in recent years, I've always tried to focus on people who do know how to do that. Okay, so if we look at this presidential election and we see the breakdown, right, I think there's real meat in what you guys are talking about here. And that is the people who Donald Trump once described as being, I love the undereducated. And we see in the polling that's going on that the people who are not college graduates are for Trump. Now, if a newspaper is doing its job, if a radio station is doing its job, those folks have to be reached. I don't mean so that you can convince them to vote for your Democratic candidate. I mean they have to be given the information. One of the things that I've always done, and you guys will laugh, of course, is somewhat kiddingly talked about Jorel, Superman's father. Because as you remember, when Krypton was exploding, a great crisis of a similar nature to what's going on in our world right now, he put the kid on a rocket ship and sent him here. But Jorel is something that a comic book reader will recognize. Don't you see? No, Com- I don't see. That's really intriguing, <laughs> but I don't see it. <laughs> I am saying, I am simply saying that when we see polling that shows that mm. the people who are voting for Donald Trump are the people who have not been educated the way that the people who went to liberal arts colleges, those people are often ignored. And that's why I have to side with Rex here, because I think one has to make a paper attractive to your intellectual readers and to people who may never have cracked a real tome or book. So I think it's terribly important. I think he's right. Two points. The the less educated voters supporting Donald Trump, you're speaking of the white voters, because that yes, is where true. Donald Trump's yes. strength is in the that's undereducated right. white voters and predominantly male as opposed to female as well. And that's it's also what is imperiling the Republican Party going forward. But now we're getting off into um, your field of political science. Yeah. I'm yeah. Stay off that. of my field. Will you please? <laughs> By the way, I haven't invited people to comment. We do welcome our comments. This is the Media Project from Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok, Jen Smith, Rosemary Armeo, and I'm Rex Smith. And you can share your views, media at wamc.org. And we are always happy to hear from you. And we will uh, hopefully make some use of your thoughts as we go forward. You know, one of the elements, of course, of the contemporary information landscape is social media. And this is now so much in the news because the leaders of the major social media sites have appeared before Congress and Republicans are claiming liberal bias in Silicon Valley, uh, beating up on these CEOs, grillings on Capitol Hill. Trump threatens legal punishment. But in fact, the conservatives actually have the upper hand online. Right-wing material actually far dominates online discussions, and it is simply not true that social media is in favor of the left. 
but it is because of that perception that there may well be some legislation to shape the future of social media that will restrict the content. So this is one of the big trends that is coming in. It will really affect all the media, right? Right. If you take a look at who's using social media, this president certainly has used it to the point where it doesn't stop. So it is interesting. And it's also interesting that there's some interest in reigning in the social media by the liberal side of the table. And I'm wondering whether or not that isn't a function of incumbency. In other words, we've talked many times, you have Rex and Rosemary and Jen, about how newspapers are falling because the young people are getting all this stuff from social media. And that represents a challenge, does it not, to the establishment on both sides of the aisle. I'm not sure that young people are looking at news in any form. They use social media, but not so much to learn things. It's also unclear to me if the regulation that Congress is considering will be helpful to all sides to keep out craziness coming from both sides, although I agree overwhelmingly from the right. And the studies also show that conservative listeners, readers, whatever, consumers are more likely to believe fake news than liberal ones. I, I don't know the meaning of that, but that's what the studies show. So I am not really in favor of any sort of legislation on news, but it's crazy what's happening in media. So if they're studying it, good. We need to know more before we make decisions. Yeah, I definitely agree with this study, but I think people, in the matter of young people, I think that is not 100% true. I think they are getting news. And the interesting thing about saying you're getting your news from social media is that sometimes people are going to a Facebook or going to a Twitter, but they're sharing actual news story local news story, national news story links. So I think the methodology is skewed a bit, and I think you have to question where people are coming from. Like, are they getting their information just from a post that they saw from their mother or their college roommate, or are they getting the post from another post that was shared from an actual news site? Or is it an editorial, an op-ed piece, or was it an actual news story? And this is where I think looking at that information, those numbers, gets really murky. All going to support the notion that we need to be teaching media and news literacy so that people can recognize real serious journalism. (laughs) All right. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Sorry to say, folks. Yeah, it's true. You'll have to come back next week to hear more. And after that, we will have election results between now and then. So it will be a new world. Alan Shartok, Jen Smith, all the way from out west. Rosemary Romeo and I'm Rex Smith. And we are grateful to our producer, Dave Gustina, for making sense of all of this and grateful to you for listening this week to The Media Project. Now, newspapermen are such interesting people. They used to work like hell just for romance. But finally, the movies notwithstanding, they all got tired of patches on their pants. The Media Project is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. Alan Shartok is CEO of WAMC, Professor Emeritus at the State University of New York, commentator, columnist, and author. Rex Smith is editor-at-large of the Albany Times Union. Rosemary Armeo is an investigative journalist and adjunct professor at the University at Albany. And Jen Smith is the engagement editor for the Education Lab at the Seattle Times. You can listen to or podcast The Media Project anytime at wamc.org or just download the WAMC app for your iPhone or Android at the Play Store today. Thanks for listening. Their policy is an acrobatic thing. They claim to represent the common people. It's funny Wall Street never has complained. 
Ah, but publishers have worries, for publishers must go to working folks for readers and to big shots for their dough. Now publishers are such interesting people. It could be prostitution, I don't know. Ting-a-ling-a-ling, circulation, ting-a-ling-a-ling, advertising, get those readers, get that payoff. What a headache, what a mess. Oh, publishers are such interesting people. Let's give free cheers for freedom of the press. <laughs>